Well, good morning. It is, uh, it is good to be here again. If I haven't met you or don't know you, my name is Joe Johnson, and I'm the RUF campus minister at Mississippi State and been here a number of times throughout the past year. I'll be here next week for one more time. And then we are having our third baby, so I will not be here for a little bit. But it's always a joy to be here with you and, um, and to get to be uh, um, the one that brings God's word. And we'll be at Psalm 46 this morning. Psalm 46. I love the Psalms, and I said a few times ago, the next few times I'll be here, we'll be in the Psalms. Uh, God did not have to give us the Psalms. I think that's why I love them so much. He could have just given us stories. He could have just given us laws, the letters of the New Testament. He could have given us simply information about himself. But one of the unique gifts that he gave us in the Bible is that he gives us songs to sing, uh, prayers to pray, thoughts to think that help us articulate our worship to him and to also articulate the deepest longings and pains of our souls. And so when we approach a psalm, we always ask that question, what does God want us to speak about, pray about, sing about as his people? And Psalm 46 really is a psalm for the worried and anxious, to bring our worry and anxiety to God. I don't know if there is a topic I more often talk about with my students at Mississippi State than anxiety. Uh, what does God say about that? And how does he invite us to pray as his worried people to be still before him? So with all that in mind, let's read Psalm 46, only 11 verses in total, starting in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will be with her when her morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob, our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go to God together in prayer and ask for his help. Uh, this is your word, Lord. We are your people. And we are here gathered to worship you. And so, Lord, help us to cling to every word of this psalm that your people have been singing for a very long time. Uh, maybe our hearts need to be singing it right now when we think of the things that give us fear and worry. But Jesus, most of all, help us to see you clearly and find you more beautiful. In Christ's name, amen. A movie reference that I can make here that I can't make with my college students, a movie from the 80s, An Officer and a Gentleman. Um, my parents loved this movie. I remember watching it growing up. And there was one scene that always stuck with me, and I'm nervous to say this in a town that it does have an Air Force base in it, and I have no idea this is how it's supposed to work at all, but it was in the movie, so blame the movie if this is incorrect. But in the movie, these naval officer candidates are going through a training exercise. 
And the training exercise is to escape a water crash landing. And so they're in this big building with a pool in the middle of it with scuba divers in the pool. And they're set up in sort of this mock cockpit. And they kind of go down, my best explanation is sort of a, a roller coaster into the pool and then the cockpit flips over and that they are supposed to release themselves and swim to the top. That's all they're supposed to do. And I remember this scene clearly because I am not a very good swimmer nor have never been a good swimmer in my life. And so I thought, well, that's my end of my career as a naval officer. I could never pass this test. But I remember the officer in charge of this exercise kept saying, when you get in the water, take a second and a half, calm down, breathe out, and look what directions the bubbles will go. And because he said, you're going to be so disoriented when you get in the water, you're upside down, you flipped a couple times, your, your brain sort of isn't going to work the way it's supposed to work, so calm down for a second, breathe out, and see which way the bubbles go. And his point was, the bubbles will always go up. Uh, the bubbles will always tell you the truth. You're going to be disoriented. You might swim the wrong direction. You might not know which way you're supposed to go. But look at the bubbles to see what's true and what's not true. And it's that sort of moment of disorientation that I feel is what anxiety does to us. In this world where we're filled with worry, anxiety, anxious thoughts about our family, our life, our money, or whatever it might be, it makes us unable to see what's true and untrue. Which way's up and which way's down? What is worth our worry and what's not worth our worry? And I don't think Psalm 46 says, don't worry because God has you. I actually think it's God's invitation for his anxious people to bring our anxious hearts before a God who is not anxious, who is sitting on his throne and only calls his people to be still before him. And so as we walk through this Psalm, I want us to see how it really says to follow the bubbles to see what's really true about God in the midst of an anxious world. And so how do we do that? Three things as we walk through this psalm. That we are invited to brutal honesty in our prayers. Secondly, we are invited to see God clearly. And third, we're invited to be still. The thing we will most struggle with, be still. Brutal honesty, seeing God clearly, and being still. So first, the psalmist invites us to brutal honesty. The psalm starts out here with something very positive. Verse 1, God is our strength, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, and therefore we will not fear. A few things come out in just this verse and a half of this psalm, two universal truths, is one, God can be found by his people. Actually, maybe a more appropriate rendering here of the Hebrew is he's easily found in trouble. That God is not a distant God, not a distant deity, but is close and near to his people. And in the midst of trouble, in the midst of anxious worry, God can be found, easily found. Maybe doing some of his best work when our life doesn't go the way we think it's going to go. But a second universal truth that comes from these few words is that God tells us trouble will come. It's to be expected. That God's people will go through seasons of great fear, great anxiety, great worry, and even very bad news. And so, what does he say? He says, we will not fear. God is our help. God is our refuge. God is our strength. But then, do you see where he goes? It's the famous those of Psalm 46. Look what he says. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
Though its rotters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It's sort of a funny way for him to start. We will not fear. And then he names a bunch of very scary things, doesn't he? And he's showing things that are, are meant to provide uh, foundation and stability. Mountains see the, 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 the ground itself giving way. And he's saying these signs of stability are all of a sudden gone. But you have to ask, what is the psalmist really talking about here? I mean, this, this never actually happened. He never actually saw this take place. Is he simply talking about maybe what a siege upon Jerusalem would feel like? Is he talking about some sort of natural disaster or war? What is he saying? And all commentators really do agree that what he's describing here is an exaggerated fear. He's describing as what one commentator said, all hell breaking loose. Anything he was clinging to for stability, gone, and chaos reigns. He's talking about an exaggerated fear. But isn't that what our anxiety really is? Uh, Corey Brock, my friend, who was a pastor in Jackson, First Pres Jackson, he's in Scotland now, a PhD in theology. And um, he wrote an article in Table Talk of the Bible and anxiety. What does the Bible say about anxiety? We throw it around a lot. What does the Bible say about it? And Corey, going through how Jesus talks about anxiety in different Proverbs, he gives us this definition. That anxiety, according to the Bible, according to Jesus in Matthew 6 and Luke 12, is an ongoing fearful restlessness where we, where we imagine hypothetical circumstances of loss. It's an ongoing fearful restlessness where we imagine hypothetical circumstances of loss. Very sterile definition. But sometimes I think a defining words really helps. Because isn't that our worry and our anxiety and our fears? It, it's all hypothetical towards the future. Where we can imagine the road that we're going down and it is almost always worst case scenario. Uh, my wife tells me that I can take good news and make it bad in about 12 seconds. And then I can go the, paint the picture of the road that we're going. It started out as good news and now I'm 30 years down the road destitute and no one loves me anymore. Those hypothetical circumstances of loss that though they're not real, we begin to live them out now. But simply defining that, seeing what it is, it gives us a little bit of a power over it. But I think Psalm 46 helps us out even more by the psalmist showing how we can actually pray those things to God. That he gives God his those. I won't fear, though God, I'm really scared right now. I wonder how you would fill in your those. How would you pray to God, Psalm 46, for yourself? Though I will not fear, though I have no idea what my job's going to be next year, and that's terrifying. I will not fear, though God, I really am scared for my children's future. I will not fear, though, Lord, I look around and I only see chaos all around me. How would you fill in your those if this was your personal prayer? And I actually would argue that will give you a power over those fears. Because you're bringing it to the one who holds the world in his hands. What are your those? And actually forcing yourself to answer this question, you will have to say things that you have no control over. And it will make you feel weak. And I think that's the point, to feel weak and in our weakness to feel his strength. But we're not good at weakness. We don't want to have need. But actually one sign of Christian maturity 
is to see how much we actually do need Jesus. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Charlie Wingard, uh, used to tell a story. When he was at a church in Huntsville, Alabama, they would make a yearly mission trip to South America where he would uh, go and um, do ministry at a leper colony, which I didn't know leper colonies still existed, but this one does. And Dr. Wingard and his church would go down uh, to see this church, minister there, do building projects. He would preach. And he joked with us about how this would be the church that if they ever called him to be their pastor, he would go and quit everything and go be with them. Because he said it was the most joy-filled, faithful congregation he's ever been a part of. And when we asked him why, Dr. Wingard would give the theologically correct answer of that the Holy Spirit's working there in an incredible way. But then he would also say something like this, that I think they know their need for Christ because they have to wear it on their skin. That I don't know if you're like me, but I have a PhD in hiding my needs and my faults and my failures and my weaknesses. My students are even better at it. They can hide any imperfection from the world. But that group of people in South America, they can't hide their need. So when they come to worship Jesus, they come as weak people worshiping the only hope that they have. What are your those? And how can that send you deeper into dependency upon God and to see his strength more clearly? We're invited to brutal honesty. Because we will not find God as a strength and refuge unless we see we need his strength and need him to be our refuge, our fortress, the God of Jacob. Brutal honesty in our prayers. Bring your fears to God. But then secondly, the psalmist calls us to see God in the midst of our anxieties, to see God clearly in the midst of our anxieties. Look at where he goes from here. This is verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the only hab holy habitation of his most high. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when her morning dawns. Uh, what is he talking about here? There's, there's some hope here. That God dwells with his people. That he's in the midst of her. That he will help her in the morning. The passage is changing to something way more positive, but a question pops into our mind. I know it's popping into your minds right now because you know ancient Near Eastern geography so well and caught up on that. But, but he's talking about a river. And he's also talking about Jerusalem, the city of God, where he dwells with his people. But there's no river in Jerusalem. Actually, very famously so, that there would be a, a water crisis if the city was surrounded and besieged, that, that, that he's talking about this river that proves God's, God's with his people, but there's no physical river in Jerusalem. What is he talking about here? But then we all of a sudden remember that there's another Jerusalem talked about in Scripture. Revelation 21, 22, new Jerusalem, perfect Jerusalem, Jerusalem remade, where God will dwell with his people forever, and in that city... In that city, the Bible tells us that there is a river, a river that runs through the middle of the city, that flows from the throne and from the Lamb Himself. And that river is said to have trees lining it on each side, and even the trees and their leaves are for the healing of the nations. And in that city, that river is a sign of God's abundant presence with His people, His blessing upon them. That what the psalmist turns to now in the midst of our fears and anxieties and those, he's saying, remember a God who never leaves his people. A God who is in the midst of her. A God is united to his people in the highs and lows of their life. Do we know that we're not alone? 
But it's not as if the psalmist just says, remember God's with you, you're good. No, he answers the question, what kind of God is with his people? And did you see this verse that I think stands out as we read it? Verses 6, just verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. Isn't that terrifying? And I think it's meant to be terrifying. The psalmist reminds us God is with his people. He'll forever be with his people. And we're waiting for the one day, someday to come. Will he be with us in fullness? But then he reminds us that though we can look out and see nations rage and kingdoms totter and the world fall apart and chaos all around, he puts it all under the big picture of a God who holds the world in his hands. And if he utters his voice, it all melts away. A God that we just sang about that creates and destroys a God that sustains this world. And if Jesus ever stopped sustaining this world, it would go back to nothing in a moment. And what the psalmist is calling us to do is to see the power and might of our God, not to scare us, but to put our fears in perspective of who our God is. That our problems, our fears, our worries, our anxieties are not outside of him. God is not anxious on his throne about what's going on in your life. He deeply cares for his people present in his people and working in our hearts. The psalmist reminds us to see God clearly. The one whose voice can melt the earth. And that he is the God, the father of his people who holds us near. And is at work in us. He's king. And we're not. And that's good news. I was talking to um, my friend who's also a counselor about a season in my life that was really hard. And it was right after my second child was born um, and um, beginning of pastoral ministry and just sort of a lot of things happening in life. And I found myself um, just not doing very well. And so I was talking to friends about it and talking to him about it. And the first time we met, he sort of asked me what was going on, what brought me in to see him. And I just kind of told him a lot of anxiousness, a lot of worry, not sleeping very well, um, dealing with a special needs child, dealing with all kinds of stuff and just felt overwhelmed. And later on, as we kept met meeting, he finally asked, like, Joe, what's, what's really scaring you right now? And I told him, and I'm, I'll, I'll spare you the details of it, but I told him what was scaring me. If this were happened, then, then maybe this would mean this about me. And he says, all right, well, that's really scary. What would happen if that were to happen? I said, well, then, th- then maybe this would happen, and then maybe this would happen to my family. And he said, all right, come, bring it. Well, what's the worst possible thing that could come from all of this? And so I talked for seven and a half minutes going down that road of hypothetical fears, saying, then this were to happen, then this were to happen, I'd lose my fame, I'd lose my ministry, I'd be all alone, and I couldn't do it, and I have no idea what that would look like. And he sat back in his chair after I got done talking, and then he said, man, that's really scary. That's a lot. But I don't think any of that's going to actually happen. And even if it does, do you know what else will happen? That you'll get up the next day and that Jesus will still be king and he will still love you. He'll still be king and he'll still love you. Isn't that true? That's not him throwing away those fears like they're dumb. It's him putting them in the presence of Jesus himself, king, and making me see that the gospel was bigger than my fears. The gospel is bigger than my worries. 
that God will not leave me, that he is in the midst of his people? Do you see God clearly? Do you actually let your fears lead you to the throne room of grace to sit at his feet? Because that's actually where the psalmist leads us next. It's to be still before him. This is the part of the psalm that we're really not going to like very much. Because this is the opposite of what our anxiety makes us want to do. Actually, anxiety makes you feel like you're center stage. You're the one who has to fix these things. You're the one that has to make all of this go untrue. You're the one that has to save yourself from those hypothetical circumstances of loss. But what is the one imperative in this entire passage? It's God saying, be still. Be still before me. The opposite of what our busy hearts want to do. The opposite of what our fears make us feel like we have to do. And yet a centrally important thing for Christians to be able to do, to sit at the feet of God and be still. But what does it look like to be still before God? And I really think the psalmist here in verses 9 through 11 gives us two things to do while we're being still before God. And the first is this, to be still and to remember his works. To be still and to remember God's works. Look what he says in verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. What is the psalmist pointing to here? Well some of this language is igniting in our imagination the memory of the exodus. Of God rescuing his people from Egypt and bringing them to the promised land. That part of being still before God is remembering his works in the past for his people. Remembering what he's done and accomplished for us. And on this side of the cross, we don't just have to think back to the exodus where he saves his people. We think back to that Friday, to that Sunday morning of God rescuing his people from sin and death and clothing us in his righteousness. And we can even think back about times in our life of how God has worked, has been there for us, has been there in the deep seasons of loneliness and pain and how he's worked to grow us over the years. We think back about the works of God and remember that he doesn't change, that we worship the same God today that Moses talked to on the mountain, that we worship the same God today that came into this world in flesh to die for his people. That we worship the same God today that was with you the day you were converted. We worship the same God. He does not change. In the midst of worry, what do we do? We remember his works of the past. It's really what we do in worship here, isn't it? To remember what God has done for his people that it's still true today. Part of being still before God is remembering what he's done. But a second part of being still before God I think is even more crucially important. To be still And know that he is God and we are not. To be still before him and remember that he is God and that we are not. To be still before him, to let go of our fears and anxieties and to give it to him knowing we can't do anything about these those and only he can. Because how much of my worry comes from me being center spotlight, pretending to be my own Messiah and my own God that I can take control over this and over and over again I fail. But what does it look like for me to practice my dependency before his throne to sit and be still and know that he is God and I am not? Uh, Martin Luther, during the Reformation, his best friend, who doesn't get um, 
as much of the fame was a man named Philip Melanchthon. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, crucially important during the Reformation, crucially important to Martin Luther's ministry, really was part of the systematizer, the brilliant mind behind Luther. But Luther was the bold one. Luther was the one that was willing to say really hard things when the church needed him to. Uh, Luther was the one that nails the 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. He is the one that says, here I stand, I can do no other. And behind him was Philip, who was known, as the few things we know about his life, was known as a very shy and maybe sad and scared person. And he was known for getting overwhelmed during this season, and he probably should have been overwhelmed because at any moment these two men could have died, they could have been put to death. And Philip, as he would come and get overwhelmed, he would, he would go to Martin Luther and say something like this, Martin, it's over. Let's run for our lives. And Martin Luther, being who he was, would simply laugh, hand his friend a drink, put his hand on his back, and say, let Philip cease to rule the world today. And let God. Let Philip cease to rule the world today. And let God. I'm not sure that's exactly what we should say to our friend in the middle of a panic attack or a spouse that's very angry. But I think that's something that I need to say to my soul every morning when I get up. Let Joe cease to rule the world today. I think I need to say this every time I get up to preach to my students. Let Joe cease to rule the world today. I think I need to say that to myself when I'm worried about my children, when I'm worried about my future child, when I'm worried about my finances, when I'm worried about life in general. Let Joe cease to rule the world today. Because what is God asking us to do in Psalm 46? To simply be anxious people, bringing their worries to him and being still, approaching our father like a child who simply needs a hug and to be told everything's going to be okay. Because that's what God's doing here in Psalm 46. To remind us of what's coming, to remind us of what kind of God he is, and to invite his worried children to be still in his non-anxious presence, his sovereign presence, his sovereign grace. Let's bring our anxieties and worry to God and see him more clearly. Let me pray. Father in heaven, help us to see the bubbles in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of a life that leaves us confused, help us be still before you and remember what kind of God that we have. Father, help us to rest, not in our doings, not in our plans, but in your plan of redemption. I pray, Lord, that we know you well, that we can easily find you in the midst of trouble because you're there. And that we can bring our those and our worries and our fears and anxieties and lay them to rest in you. Be with us, your people. And Jesus, make us more like you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.